Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 31. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Let's pay careful attention to God's Word. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Let's turn back, seeking the Lord's help and blessing, to Romans chapter 3, focusing our attention this morning on verses 19 and 20. As you'll recall, last Sabbath, we were able to consider the righteousness of God as a broad overview of verses uh, 21 really 21 through 26. And in the ensuing weeks, God willing, we're going to be delving into these verses much in the same way that we delved into the section that dealt with human sin in verses 10 through 18. Uh, But in order for us to do that, we need to circle back just a couple of verses and spend some time seeking to understand God's law as it's referenced here in verses 19 and 20, because that really sets the table for a more in-depth exploration of God's righteousness in the following verses. And so, we see in verses 19 through 20 that the Apostle Paul, after outlining 
the reality of human sin, human guilt, he summarizes the point that he's making here. He brings it all to bear. He's built the pyramid, now he turns the pyramid upside down and brings it down on this one point. Now we know, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. So the Apostle Paul is telling us here that all of us are under the law. All of us are accountable to the law. Every single one of us has broken the law, so we're not only under accountability to the law, under obligation to keep the law, but in addition, he's saying that we're all under the condemnation of the law. We have all sinned. We've all broken the law. We've all fallen short of the law, as, as he says a few verses later. And therefore, all the world has become guilty before God. If anyone was to think that the law was a means of being reconciled to God, as a means of obtaining eternal life from God, as if the law was a way to separate ourselves from others and demonstrate our superiority and that we ourselves deserve something from God, he says, no, no. The law has, in terms of this question that we're dealing with here, he says it has but one purpose in a fallen world, and that is to reveal the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin. And this is critical. This is crucial for us if we're to understand what comes in the subsequent verses. So this morning I want us to just um, set up shop here in a consideration of the law of God. Which law? What does he mean by the law? There's so many things that come to mind to so many different theologians, to so many different denominations and religious groups when they see this reference to the law. And so we need to be very precise. Uh, We serve a precise God. And we need to be precise about exactly what God through the Holy Spirit is revealing to us in Paul's epistle to the Romans when Paul speaks about the law. What does he mean here by the law? Now, in the Scriptures, God's law is referred to in three main ways. There are three main ways in which God's law is referred to. Now, if we, if we simply looked at the phrase the law or the word law, we'd have to expand that significantly. In fact, you may have noticed that in verse uh, 27, it says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? A law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So there the word law is just referring to a principle. And we'll consider that verse. It's an important verse for our understanding of this passage. But there it's just using the word law in a different way. And the word law is used in so many different ways. It can just mean a principle or an an administration, an arrangement of some kind. But when we speak of God's law, which is clearly what our text is referring to in verses 19 and 20, 
when we speak of God's law in the Scriptures, there are three main usages. First, the law of God can refer to Scripture itself. It can refer to the special revelation of God. You think of Psalm 19. The first half of the psalm deals with God's general revelation or natural revelation in creation and conscience. But then it pivots in the second half of the psalm to deal with special revelation. To deal with God's inscripturated revelation. And the word that's used there is His law. Torah. Which means teaching. Which means doctrine. Which means essentially God's revealed truth. Now obviously, as we'll see in a moment, uh, the word law can be more specific to refer to God's precepts, God's commandments. And that's the emphasis in Psalm 19, don't get me wrong. But you can see in a broader sense that the psalm is saying, here you have general revelation, and now we're going to pivot to special revelation. God's law, God's revealed teaching, God's truth. And this is how Paul uses the word law Uh, in verse uh, 21, specifically to refer to the portion of the Scriptures that was revealed under Moses. Notice he says, the law and the prophets. Verse 21, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There the term law reveals to that portion of special revelation that was authored by Moses. The first five books of the Bible. Now, there are many commandments in those books, but when the New Testament uses that phrase, law and the prophets, and it uses that word law to speak of the books of Moses, it's not limiting it to certain portions where God issues commandments. It's saying all of those scriptural books. And so the law refers to scripture, in particular, in many cases, the books of Moses. Sometimes the term law in the Scriptures refers to the entire Old Testament. You see this in uh, John chapter 10, verse 34. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking to His enemies, the religious leaders that are opposing Him. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Now he's quoting the Psalms. And yet he speaks of it as Your law, in other words, the law of God. This is how the word law was used to speak of the entire Old Testament at times. The law of the prophets and the Psalms could sometimes be referred to simply as the law. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 21, Paul says, In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. That's from Isaiah. Paul calls it the law. So, the term law can refer to special revelation in general, and at a time when you only had the Old Testament, it referred to the Old Testament itself, from, we could say, Genesis to Malachi. Sometimes the word law can refer to Scripture in an all-inclusive sense, to refer to Old and New Testament. Sometimes this is just uh, a matter of applying what's said in the Old Testament when all they had was the Old Testament and then just applying that in our own context. For instance, Psalm 1 verse 2, which says that the godly man meditates on God's law day and night. 
And what that's telling us in the Old Testament context, if we apply it to the New, would mean we should be meditating on God's special revelation. We should be meditating on all Scripture, which is profitable for teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. We should be meditating on all of it day and night. All of God's revealed truth, old and new. It's by way of an indirect application. The same could be true of Psalm 19. Uh, when it speaks of God's law, God's revealed truth. We should be meditating on everything the New Testament says in in application of that verse. But you see, even more particularly in the Old Testament, that New Testament revelation, as the Old Testament is anticipating it and predicting it, New Testament revelation is referred to with this term law. Isaiah 2, verse 3. Many people shall come and say... Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see the Hebrew parallelism. What is the law that's going forth from Jerusalem at the Great Commission and to the ends of the earth? It's the word of the Lord. And so the term law is in reference to all of God's new covenant revelation as well. So the law can refer to all Scripture. Certainly, we look at verses 19 and 20, we are accountable to the entire Bible. Uh, we're, We're accountable for all that man is to believe concerning God, as the Catechism says, and all the duties that God requires of man. Uh, In fact, if you look carefully at the first part of that, it says the doctrines that we are to believe. What man is to believe concerning God. So even the doctrines God reveals uh, have embedded in them a duty to believe those doctrines. So you can see the, the, the more general usage of Scripture here is at least relevant. Uh, the more general usage of, of the word law is relevant here in our text. But secondly, references to God's law often focus in particular upon God's commandments, God's precepts. And in some verses, that would be limited to the precepts that were revealed through Moses at Mount Sinai. For instance, John 1.17 famously says, the law was given through Moses. And so, God revealed Himself, gave special revelation, but in particular, precepts that God revealed through Moses. And this is even more clear, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 8 and 9. Paul's speaking about how you should basically pay pastors. Uh, and, you know, yeah, he's talking about paying pastors. He says, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it, was, it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? So you can see that there's a reference to the law of Moses in general, but there's this law, this law from the law of Moses, this precept that God revealed through Moses that it is incumbent upon New Testament Christians to obey. So law can be a reference to Mosaic precepts. The term law can refer to any Old Testament precept as when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, said that in Matthew chapter 5 in the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ 
said he did not come to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets. And there he's saying the law or the prophets as God's special revelation and focusing his attention there upon the precepts. Because he goes on to describe, verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So here you have Old Testament precepts. And you say, well, he says the law and the prophets. But notice, after he says he won't destroy the law and the prophets, uh, in the very next verse, he says that uh, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. So where he says law and the prophets, generally now he summarizes all the commandments of both the law and the prophets in this word law. All the Old Testament commandments and precepts. He is affirming. Uh, Also, we have references to God's law that refer to all of God's precepts in both the Old and New Testaments. An example of this would be Isaiah chapter 42, verse 4, predicting the New Testament period. Speaking of Christ, He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't quench the smoking flax. Verse 4, He will not fail nor be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands In other words, the ends of the earth, the far reaches, the coastlands shall wait for His law. The coastlands shall wait for His law. We still have coastlands that are waiting for His law. Many nations have yet to be evangelized and discipled. It's a very optimistic verse. But the point here is that the message of the New Testament, the message of God's Word in Old and New Testaments, and the commandments and the moral obligations that are communicated, that they're to be taught and trained to observe all that Jesus has commanded, Matthew 28, all those moral imperatives from Old and New Testament are referred to here as the law that these coastlands are waiting for. James 1 calls it a law of liberty. And so, the law can refer to all moral obligation from Old or New Testaments. But other instances of the law, thirdly, refer to a period of time. And we see this in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, where the law is used in reference not to a body of revealed literature or teaching or moral obligation, but to a period of time. Luke 16, verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So here, the the word law is used in reference to the Old Testament period uh, in which they were under the law of Moses, for instance. It's referring to that Old Covenant period that came to an end with the ministry of John and the transition into the New Covenant through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul also uses this type of language in Galatians 3, verse 17. He says, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no 
effect. So the, the giving of the law is really a, a marker of time on the biblical timeline. From the law forward, you have this period of the law and the prophets, which culminates in the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing the way for Christ. It's a period of time. And that occurs also in the book of Romans chapter 5.13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So again, he's using the law to refer to this period of time in Old Testament history from Moses till John the Baptist. So it can be a period of time. It can be Scripture as a whole. It can be scriptural moral imperatives that we're obligated to fulfill. Now when we look at Romans chapter 3, it's patently obvious that the Apostle Paul is referring to the law in the second usage that we looked at. Uh, He's referring to the law as God's specially revealed commandments, precepts. These are the things that all the world is under obligation to fulfill. These are the things that all the world is guilty for having violated. So we're looking here specifically at God's specially revealed precepts. Now obviously, at the particular time in which Paul is writing, he's focusing his attention on the Old Testament precepts. On the precepts that you find in the law and the prophets. Why is he doing that? Well, the New Testament is a work in progress. I mean, he's, he's writing books of the New Testament. So he's not really thinking about New Testament moral obligations. He's focused on this whole notion of Old Testament commandments. Now, which sorts of Old Testament commandments is Paul emphasizing here? Which sorts of Old Testament precepts is he referencing? And at this point, uh, we must make an, an important threefold distinction in the Old Testament law of God. You can see this distinction expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think it's chapter 19. But this is a biblical distinction, a threefold division of the Old Testament law that we need to very carefully uh, consider here this morning. First, you have the moral law. The moral law. The moral law of God defines and demands inward and outward righteousness. In other words, it defines the difference between good and evil. It defines what what it means to be conformed to God's righteous character. It defines that. It spells it out. And it demands that we obey those commandments. It demands conformity to God in thought, word, and deed. Inwardly and outwardly. The moral law of God. And the moral law of God is universal. The Apostle Paul makes this point over and over again. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He's saying this moral law of God, yes, it's included in the Old Testament Scriptures, But it's universal, even for people who have never read the Hebrew Bible, never read a Bible, never received special revelation. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. And so God's righteous character is reflected in the the corrupted yet remaining image of God in man, and in the human conscience, 
And so the work of the law is written on the heart, and that's the moral law, which defines and demands inward and outward conformity to God's righteous character. Paul emphasizes this in our own text. He says whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Not just Jews who have the law in Scripture aided, but Gentiles who don't have the law. Their mouth is stopped as well. All the world, whether they have the written law in scriptural form or whether they have the work of the law in their heart, they're all guilty before God. Why? Because God in their conscience and in the Word of God has defined and demanded inward and outward conformity to His own righteous character. All are obligated to that and all are guilty for violating it in thought, word, and deed, inwardly and outwardly. And so, uh, the moral law of God The moral law of God is not only universal, it is perpetual in its obligation. Uh, We mentioned Matthew 5, 17 through 19 as an example of where Jesus is dealing with Old Testament precepts as a whole, and that's true. But if you look carefully at Matthew 5, Jesus is not expounding the ceremonial law. Jesus is not expounding the judicial law. You know, he's expounding the moral law. Love your neighbor. Uh, love God, how do we pray to God, how do we fast, how do we worship, how do we, how do we give alms. What, what is he dealing with there? He's dealing with the moral law of God. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What do these commandments mean? Jesus is fulfilling the moral law, not by way of fulfilling the types and shadows of the ceremonies, not in the sense of fulfilling the judicial laws. You know, he's not picking up stones and chucking them at people. Okay, Jesus is fulfilling the law by teaching the full measure of its meaning and application. So Matthew 5, he didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. Uh, This is the moral law of God. And not a jot or a tittle will be destroyed from it. It is perpetual. It will continue to be preserved in God's providence. And it will continue to be binding. So it is perpetual. Uh, This is the law that is summarized for us, not in scrolls of the Old Testament, but in stone. In, In that permanent inscription of the Ten Commandments, chiseled with the finger of God into these tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments is a summary of God's moral law. The first four deal with our love for God. The last six deal with our our duty to love others. And Jesus then condenses even that summary into the two great commandments, which He also draws from the Old Testament law. He says that we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, flowing out of that, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And... Jesus then also summarizes that second half of the Ten Commandments with the golden rule. Uh, You need to treat other people the way you desire to be treated. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Speaking of that second half, the last six commandments and the Ten Commandments. So this is a law that includes every biblical commandment that expresses God's righteous character, but it's very easily summarized and memorized in the Ten Commandments, in the two great commandments. The moral law of God. Also, you have the ceremonial law. I've already alluded to that briefly, but the ceremonial law. 
Whereas the moral law defines and demands inward and outward conformity to God's righteous character, the ceremonial law illustrates the need for righteousness. The moral law says you need righteousness, but the ceremonial law illustrates what that means, particularly in a fallen world where everyone is unrighteous. No one is righteous. No one does good. And so to be righteous and to be obedient in a fallen world means you have to come out from among them. You have to be separate. You have to be different. And so the law of God in its ceremonial aspect makes all these distinctions. This is a clean animal. This is an unclean animal. Uh, you know, you can't sow your field with two kinds of seed and and, and you, know, you, you can't make your shirt out of two kinds of fabric, and so on and so forth. All of these dietary, sanitary, sacrificial, liturgical laws that, that illustrate the need for righteousness, the need to be separate, the need to be holy, and there's all these precepts of ceremonial uh, cleanness and uncleanness. And in addition, the ceremonial law illustrates the solution to unrighteousness. So there is no one righteous. We're all unclean. How do we become clean? How do we become righteous? How do we become acceptable in the sight of a holy God when our sins deserve damnation? And so specifically, the sacrificial system where there's blood atonement that's illustrated, set forth. When you go to the temple or the tabernacle, there are animals that are clean animals representing the perfect righteousness of Christ. And the priests put their hands on those animals, as it were, imputing the sin of the people unto those animals. And those animals are slaughtered on the altar and in many cases burnt as a burnt offering, consumed by the fires of God's wrath, as it were. The sacrificial system. Uh, the, the Old Testament liturgical precepts, we could say the, the, the laws for worship. And, and we don't have time to get into all of these different things. But, but the, the ceremonial law is illustrative of our need for righteousness, what that means, what that looks like. In addition, the solution to unrighteousness through blood atonement, pointing to the sacrifice of Christ to come. Now, the ceremonial law is distinct from the moral law. These are two different kinds of commandments. You see that? I mean, that's just Old Testament 101. You look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, obedience is better than sacrifice. Okay? Saul disobeyed God's command by way of the prophet Samuel, and, uh, and, and, and he disobeyed God so that he could offer this sacrifice. Well, obedience is better than sacrifice. Uh, rather than sinning and, and then offering up an illustration of why you shouldn't have sinned and how to be saved from the punishment of sin, why not just obey God in the first place? Right? The moral law of God. Conformity to His righteous character. Obedience is better than sacrifice. You see this even more clearly delineated in the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, 
the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So aside from what may be there a reference to human sacrifice, that's a whole other point he's making. He says, what good would it be if I brought all of these ceremonial offerings, but I didn't walk with God according to the first table of God's moral law? And I didn't uh, implement justice in my dealings with others and love mercy. And, and as Jesus says to the Pharisees, if I don't take seriously the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So it's very clear that even in the Old Testament, there's a distinction between ceremonial precepts which illustrate the need for righteousness and the solution to unrighteousness as opposed to the moral law Uh, whereby we actually pursue righteousness. That's the key. That's the important... That that has the priority according to Micah 6, 6 6-8. And you can see this in the ministry of Christ when uh, He violates certain what we might call ceremonial aspects of the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath in order to uh, sustain human life, to heal people, to, to feed people. Matthew 12, 3 and following, uh, Jesus argues against the Pharisees who are critical of His disciples having uh, you know, plucked grain on the way back from the synagogue heading home. And uh, they're critical of Him healing people on the Sabbath. And He says, verse 7 of Matthew 12, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is making a distinction there between the ceremonial law and the moral law. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Quoting, I think, the the prophet Hosea. Uh, So, the weightier matters of the law, the, the moral law is distinct from the ceremonial law. Not to say the ceremonies aren't required. They're morally required. Uh, but they, we would never say that that uh, you know, we ought to violate the moral law in order to keep the ceremonial law. Jesus says there has to be a pecking order here. There's a, an important priority and distinction between the weightier matters and the lesser matters of God's law. Uh, now, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Christ in a different way than He fulfilled the moral law. Uh, He fulfilled the moral law by teaching the full meaning of it and then perfectly accomplishing it, so on and so forth. But He fulfilled the ceremonial law by Himself accomplishing all that these illustrations were pointing forward to. He he was wholly harmless, undefiled. And He accomplished that blood atonement for the sins of His people. He fulfilled, we could say He abolished the Old Covenant ceremonial precepts. Acts 10.15, God tells Peter, kill and eat. That dietary distinction between clean and unclean animals, it is no longer binding. It has been abolished. We see really one of the main points in the epistle to the Hebrews is this very teaching that the Old Covenant ceremonial law has been abolished. Hebrews 7 verse 18 For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. This is regarding the Levitical priests who have been replaced by Christ in the order of Melchizedek, our great high priest. So the Old Testament ceremonial laws concerning the priests, the former commandment 
is annulled, he says, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. That is in comparison to Christ, the fulfillment. Now, he would never say that about the, the moral law, that, that it's, that it's uh, unprofitable and so on and so forth. No, not the moral law, but the ceremonial law has been replaced. It's been abolished. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So Christ is not a type or a shadow. He is the superior fulfillment to which the ceremonies were all pointing. We could read verses uh, up and down throughout Hebrews, Galatians, but it's very important distinction. The ceremonies are abolished. The moral law is perpetual cannot be abolished in principle by definition. Thirdly, you have the judicial law. You've got moral law, ceremonial law. You have thirdly, the judicial law. And the judicial law in the Old Testament governs the civil magistrate. It's, it governs the civil magistrate in restraining and punishing outward unrighteousness. So there are these outward violations of, of the moral law and what does Israel do as a nation, as a society, in, in, in its various communities? How does it respond to outward acts of unrighteousness? How does it deal with crime in the community? Well, the Old Testament judicial law given by God through Moses governs the civil magistrate in Israel as he seeks to restrain and punish outward unrighteousness. Just like Romans 13, civil magistrates are God's servants for the good of the people. They bear the power of the sword. Well, the judicial law of Moses spells that out for these civil magistrates. Uh, It gives civil laws, civil statutes, uh, penal sanctions, case laws, illustrations of various types of cases, civil and judicial, that would come before the magistrate. And it advises him concerning how he's to conduct himself in his office. Uh, The judicial laws, however, also include Laws that are typological. Laws that definitely do not apply today. You think of the Jubilee. This was a law for the nation of Israel regarding land ownership and the cancellation of of debt. You know, every 50 years there's a great reset. That's not for today. That's been fulfilled. So not all of the judicial laws um, have, have relevance for us today, although some of the globalist leaders today probably are maybe paging through their Bibles, maybe looking for some justification for that, but no, the Jubilee is a type and a shadow pointing to the redemption purchased by Christ who frees us from the debt of our sins. So there are different kinds of judicial laws. The judicial law is not by definition universal. Uh, It governs Israel's civil magistrates and community leaders, uh, but it's not universal in its application in the same way that the moral law would say to every human being, speaking to a child or an adult, uh, speaking to a person who holds civil office or a person who doesn't. The moral law governs uh, the Israelites when they're in exile and have no civil power. It governs them when they're in Israel and they have civil power. Uh, it governs the stranger in the gates who has, who has no uh, judicial authority in Israel. It governs everybody. Uh, a child is responsible to keep the commandment, thou shalt not kill in the moral law. A child is not responsible to uh, restrain and punish someone who 
murders somebody else, right? So the moral law applies to everyone of all ages universally in whatever place and calling and situation and civil societal status. It applies to everyone, but the judicial laws of Moses were for the civil magistrates. So it's, it's a more particular application of God's, of God's law in that sense. And this is why Jesus in John chapter 8 did not pick up stones to throw at the woman caught in adultery uh, because Jesus was not a civil magistrate. The civil laws, the judicial laws of Moses, which would have said to the Sanhedrin, or of course the scepter had departed from Judah by that point, but they would have stipulated ordinarily that someone who's guilty of adultery would be stoned. Jesus doesn't do it. Why? Because he fulfilled the moral law on our behalf, but he's not a civil magistrate. So he's not obligated to implement the judicial laws of Moses in that situation. In the New Testament, we have examples of the law being referred to in this sort of judicial sense. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, this is a verse that if you don't make this distinction uh, of the judicial law of Moses, you're really going to foul up the interpretation of this verse. Uh, it says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, Very important here. We don't fail to make this distinction about the judicial law. Very important. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So here he's highlighting various, for the most part, crimes, most of which received the death penalty in the Old Testament. And he's saying the judicial law is not made for the upstanding, upright, law-abiding citizen. It's made to punish scandalous, unrighteous criminals. Okay? But if you were to take this passage and you were to say, well, he's talking about the moral law. Are you kidding me? The moral law is not for righteous people. The moral law has no relevance unless you're a sodomite. makes no sense. So you have to make this distinction. That's why our confession makes the distinction. Uh, The moral law and the judicial law are distinct. And we have to make that distinction or we're going to just run amok theologically and exegetically. Uh, The Old Testament judicial law is not perpetual. The nation of Israel has expired. Uh, Even Genesis 49 says the scepter shall depart from Judah just before the Lord Jesus would come on the scene, before Shiloh would come. So the scepter has long since departed from Judah. The Old Testament nation of Israel has long since expired. And so these laws and, and precepts for the civil magistrates of Israel are no longer binding. They have expired. They've not been abolished. They've not been typologically fulfilled, except, for instance, for the Jubilee. But these laws have expired. And yet, they still have a general moral application. They still are a, 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 an example for civil magistrates today. When we look at the punishments, for instance, of the Old Testament judicial laws, we shouldn't think that these things are somehow unjust or that these things are unfair or too strict. 
Hebrews 2.2 says, If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So his very premise for the validity and the perpetuity of the gospel is the fact that what God revealed through Moses punished crime with appropriate punishments. That these uh, transgressions and acts of disobedience received a just recompense, a just reward, a just penalty. So even though the Old Testament uh, judicial laws have expired, the Bible says that they are just and righteous. We should learn from them. We have an obligation to take the general principles of equity and justice that are found in these laws and to seek to promote these things today. But again, uh, the judicial law is not equivalent to the moral law. Jesus makes this plain in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus dealing with this question regarding divorce. The Pharisees are quoting Deuteronomy 24 saying, Listen, Jesus, Moses says that you can, a husband can divorce his wife for something other than fornication. Uh, if he finds any fault in his wife, he can divorce her and write a certificate of divorce. And Moses permitted what we would today call frivolous divorce and remarriage. He simply regulated it. You had to, you had to give her her rights. You had to give her her papers and, and, and they're saying, Jesus, this doesn't square with what you're saying, that uh, if, if it's not based on fornication, then to divorce and remarry is adultery. They're saying, what about Moses? What about the judicial laws of Moses? Jesus addresses this verse 3. I'll just, I'll just read what it says. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus appeals to the original institution of marriage. In other words, to the moral law. To the institution of marriage that conforms to God's righteous character. And Jesus said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And we would all say, yes, that's the perpetual ordinance of marriage according to God's moral law, according to the seventh commandment. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And at this point, Jesus does not say, Moses never did that. You're misunderstanding Moses Uh, He required adultery or fornication for certificate of divorce. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say the judicial laws of Moses are an exact replica of the moral law of God. He doesn't say that. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now the word Moses there is is, uh, a figure of speech for the law of Moses. And he's saying the judicial law of Moses regulated divorce because it was such an intense problem. It regulated divorce in an incremental fashion, but because their hearts were so hard and frivolous divorce and remarriage was so rampant, the law of Moses 
in God's wisdom, permitted civilly while condemning morally, but it didn't make it a crime to divorce your wife for that reason. And so Jesus is making a distinction between the moral principle of marriage and the civil laws of Moses. There's no other way to consistently interpret that passage. I know many have tried, but, but Jesus is not saying Moses imposed the same judicial laws that conform to, to the moral law. He's saying that, in fact, the, the judicial laws of Moses were more permissive than the moral law of God. You say, well, why would God do that? Well, uh, why would we impose partial birth abortion? Why would we use the judicial system in our own land to promote righteousness in an incremental fashion within this, the spiritual and ethical context in which we find ourselves? God in His wisdom did, you know, permitted polygamy, permitted frivolous divorce and remarriage to go unpunished by the civil magistrate while the moral law was being taught, while it was being expounded in the synagogues so that the spiritual climate of the people would, would increase and the bar of the civil laws would increase with it in an organic fashion because that's how societies are transformed. And we can learn from that. But again, the point is Jesus Himself did not equate the judicial laws with the moral law of God. Now, for those who again are just uh, fed up with the judicial laws of Moses, understand Jesus is actually saying... Uh, we should be raising the bar, right? We should be more strict than Moses. Who wants to live in a society where polygamy is legal? Where frivolous divorce and remarriage is legal? In that sense, um, Jesus is, is in one way distancing Himself from the judicial law of Moses. In another sense, He's saying we need to raise the bar. So Christians who say the judicial laws of Moses are unfair and oppressive and tyrannical, well, according to Jesus, we should actually be even more strict as God blesses and softens the hearts of the nation. Uh, and so, what is Paul doing here in our text? Paul is emphasizing the moral law of God. He's not focusing on the ceremonies, as Roman Catholics would tell us, as New Perspective on Paul would tell us, as the Federal Vision would tell us. He's not focusing on the ceremonial law of God or the judicial law of God. When he says that we're all subject, all mankind in our text, all mankind is under obligation to the law. We're all subject to it. We've all violated it. Chapter 2, he says it's written on all of our hearts. Is he really talking about the ceremonial law? God wrote the ceremonial law. Uh, The work of the ceremonial law is on the hearts of even the Gentiles who don't have a Bible. That's nonsense. Is he saying that the Gentiles at the day of judgment, chapter 3, verse 19, will have their mouths stopped by their obligation to the ceremonial law, that they're guilty before God of violating the ceremonial law? No. And you can go through Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3. Uh, We've got verses coming out our ears throughout the entire epistle to the Romans. Again and again, the emphasis is on the moral law. Uh, In our own chapter here, there is none righteous, no, not one. It's dealing with moral, ethical righteousness. It's dealing with seeking after God. It's dealing with doing good works. It's dealing with godly use of our tongue. It's dealing with promoting peace with our neighbor. It's dealing with the fear of God, the worship of God, obedience to God, 
conformity to the righteous character of God. Paul is saying that the moral law is the thing that humbles us and convicts us. And, and of course, uh, the moral law can be used in a variety of ways. Uh, we go through the epistle of the Romans, we see Paul later in the book using the moral law as a rule of life for believers, defining the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, enabling us to love Christ and keep His commandments, My friends, the moral law has a didactic use. It has a practical use in the Christian life. It is our standard of righteousness. In chapter 6, when he says that that we're to become slaves of righteousness, submitting our members, our body parts, our heart, our soul to righteousness, that's the use of the law that we, we embrace as a rule of life for believers. And we can't keep it perfectly, but we can keep it by the grace of God. We can keep it increasingly. So that's an important use of the law. We've also seen that the moral law of God has a contextual application to our judicial laws. There are principles of justice, principles of equity that we get from the Ten Commandments, that we get from the judicial laws, and civil magistrates, if they're servants of God for good, are going to take their cue from God. They're going to take their cue from the universal principles of the Ten Commandments. They're going to take their cue from the general equity of the judicial laws. And they're going to use the law in a societal sense. But that's not, none of those things is what Paul is emphasizing in our text. He is locked and loaded with the evangelical use of the law that points us to our need for a Savior. Because what good is it if society implements God's law And what good is it if everybody says, I'm going to try to practically keep God's law if we're not first reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? If we're damned and depraved and headed for hell, societal righteousness, personal, practical, sanctified righteousness, none of these things will have any bearing or any relevance in our lives whatsoever until the law has broken our hearts and convicted us of sin. Until the law has stopped our mouths. Until the law has said to all of us, to you, to me, shut up and bow the knee. Jesus Christ, the righteous, has alone fulfilled God's law. There is no one else who is righteous. No, not one. And you need to come to Him with an urgency and with a desperation that you have broken God's law that you've fallen short of His glory, and that the wages of your sin is death. You need the law of God to disabuse you of any sense of comparative self-righteousness, of any boasting whatsoever in yourself. And you need, as Romans 10 says, to submit to the law of God. This is the evangelical use of the law. Jesus used it with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler says, how can I inherit eternal life? What good thing must I do? Jesus says, if you want to inherit eternal life, you'd better keep the commandments. And He lists them one after the other to disabuse the rich young ruler of any thought that he could do any good work to obtain or inherit eternal life. My friends, that is the evangelical use of the law. I've said it before, it's a Louisville slugger to shatter all hope of righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is saying. And and my friends, the moral law of God that he uses in this fashion 
ought to impact our entire outlook on life. We ought to be transformed by this moral law of God. This law of God, my friends, is a lens through which we view the world. It's a lens through which we understand everything God has revealed in His Word. It gives us theological insight. It tells us who God is. God is God. God is to be worshipped. He's worthy of all praise and honor. He's holy and just. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He is gracious to establish a Sabbath day in which we can worship and rest in Him. He is a God who has established this world. And just as He requires marital faithfulness, so He is faithful. Just as He requires truthfulness, so He is the God of truth. We could go on and on. We must understand and meditate on and study the moral law of God as a transcript of God's character. Sin is the hatred of God. Every time you sin, you're saying, God, I don't want to be like you. I reject you. I repudiate you. My friends, how convicted we would be if we viewed the world through that lens. This law also teaches us concerning who Christ is. Many churches today, many Christians professedly so would say, I want to be like Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ kept the moral law of God. Jesus Christ loved God and loved His neighbor, even loved and forgave His enemies. Jesus Christ kept the law of God. He studied it. He's the blessed man who meditated on it day and night. If your Christ-likeness does not include obedience to the Ten Commandments and moral law-keeping and studying and rejoicing over God's law, it is not authentic Christ-likeness. And on, on the same token, if we flip it around, uh, if your law-keeping does not involve a Christ-like attitude, a Christ-like way of dealing with other people, if your version of keeping the law of God doesn't look like Jesus' version of it in the way that He dealt graciously with other people, so on and so forth, then your law-keeping, if it's not Christ-like law-keeping, is not authentic law-keeping. This is a transcript of the character of Jesus Christ. This, this law also reveals who we are. It, it gives us an anthropological insight concerning what it means to be a human. What it means to be an image-bearing creature of God. It tells you men what a real man is. As Pilate said, here's Jesus, behold the man. It tells you what a real man is. A real man is someone who works. Someone who is diligent. Someone who takes his family responsibilities seriously. Someone who is sensitive to the needs of his family. Physically, spiritually, and doesn't go gallivanting around, but actually we talk about women staying in the home. A real man focuses on shepherding his family, spends lots of time with his family, with his wife, with his children. Uh, he is at home frequently, and he's teaching them, he's training them. A real man gives up himself for his wife and children. A real man does those things. Uh, the world doesn't present that as real manliness. It has a whole other list of things. But, but if we look at the law of God, what are your obligations to, to God's law? That's what it means to be a real man. You want to be manly? Everybody wants to get on these podcasts, masculinity, manhood. Okay, just memorize and keep the Ten Commandments. That's manhood. Uh, 
And, and what does it mean to be a liberated woman? It means to obey God's law. It, it means, like Sarah did, to respect and honor your husband. It says that she called him Lord. And you say, well, can't you just qualify that for us a thousand different ways? Well, but she honored and respected her husband. That's the key. That's the important thing. And you say, what about, what about Abigail? She called her husband a fool. Yes, but uh, she bowed to the ground in, in reverence for David. And when he proposed marriage, she bowed reverently and spoke of washing the feet of his servants. My friends, she honored and respected her husband. She's a picture of obedience to the fifth commandment, honoring authority. The world says no, but God says this is, this is the blueprint. This is the definition of a liberated woman, a woman who fears God and keeps His commandments. That's just one example. Uh, my friends, we need to take this to heart. This, is, this moral law of God is a transcript of what, what it means to be a Christian. And we need to take it to heart. We need to be humbled by it. We need to be pointed to Christ. But we need to fall in love with this law of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that You would write Your law upon our hearts, on our inward parts, on our minds, that the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth would be pleasing in Your sight, for You are our rock and our Redeemer. We thank You that You have evangelized us and that Your law has revived and given life to our souls in that it has shown us Jesus Christ the righteous, the perfect law keeper who's redeemed us from all sin and is now conforming us to His perfect righteousness day by day through the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray that You would plant this deep in our hearts, that it would sink down into our ears, and that we would be living, breathing, walking, talking, Sinners saved by grace who keep the law of God with joy and delight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.